Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. So welcome back, everyone. This week, uh, we uh, uh, top of the week, we had so many things going on everywhere, and I, I'm just excited. I, I made an announcement about a changing of our, our platform and our, the way we're going to do a few things into the the spring this year, so I'm excited about that, and also excited about today's guest, someone who ran across uh, some of the, the articles that he had written uh, for a variety of places and, um, and got a chance to order his book, um, who is actually a science journalist. So many of you who know me, and my background is in science, know that I'm just fascinated with everything science. So uh, also... Um, today's guest also kind of self-reported as being fascinated with brains, minds, and culture. And so he's going to talk about his latest book, How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion. Many of you know that I love to talk about things that can impact particularly the science of leadership, but can impact how well people lead and and uh follow in organizations. So uh, I'm pleased to introduce you to David McRaney. Welcome, David. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. So, so glad to have you here. And there's so many places where I want to um, want to go because having um, looked at your book and and um, some of the things that you've written, uh, I'd love if you could give me just a brief. Tell me how you got here. What you know? I know you you're you've been writing. You wrote. You were a newspaper rec- uh, reporter and and actually worked for a television station in the deep south. So tell me a little bit of how you ended up here and what kind of got you excited to write this book. Yeah. Well, um, again, thank you so much for having me. I. Uh, like yourself, I've been podcasting for uh, going on 13 years now, and that's part of how I got here. I went to school to be a uh, psychologist, and along the way found uh, journalism and really fell in love with it, and was working for newspapers for a while, covering higher education, and started out covering everything, covering cops and courts and uh, the uh, sewer leak and, and from the bowling alley and that kind of thing, and then eventually got a really great beat covering higher education. And then I got a great job opportunity to teach uh, broadcast journalists how to write for the web back when that was a thing that people could do. And I found myself not writing at all once I was in that job. And I started a, a blog about one of the things I loved about psychology, which was biases, fallacies, and heuristics. It all falls under what they call motivated reasoning how people come up with reasons for what they think, feel, and believe. And I wrote enough at that period of time when that was a thing to get a, a book deal, and that book deal eventually led me to just go out on my own and write books about this stuff. And mm. I started a podcast to promote all that. And at some point, 
uh, I have this podcast, You Are Not So Smart, which is all about biases and the psychology of reasoning and decision-making and judgment. And things started to get weird out there. Uh, as I'm sure everyone listening and yourself noticed, uh, we started becoming very polarized in a way that seemed unique. We started arguing a lot on the internet in a way that seemed intractable. And initially, I had a different way of seeing all of this. So it, 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 it's a thing I never expected to be. I didn't plan on this to be a sort of a marketing slogan, but in writing a book about how people change their minds, I changed my own mind. And I can remember how it, the inception of all of this. I was, I was invited to speak at a lecture, and after the lecture uh, at the conference, a young woman came up to me and told me about how her father had fallen into a conspiratorial community, and mm. she asked how to, how to get him out of that. And at the time, I was very cynical, and I told her, I don't think you can. I, I still was falling uh, – I was still repeating this old idea from the world of uh, scientific skepticism that you can't reason a person out of a position they didn't reason themselves into. But I no longer feel that way. Uh, but it took a while to get there because I remember telling her that, and I remember feeling like, I don't know if I know enough about this topic to say something like that. I certainly don't like this pessimism uh, that I'm bringing to the table. And at the very same time I was telling her this, attitude in the United States – we're changing about same-sex marriage, and I had a guest on my podcast uh, tell me about this, a political scientist who told me that it was the fastest shift in public opinion ever recorded, and we've only been recording since like the 1920s, but that shift was in the course of about a decade. 60% mm. of the United States went from being opposed to this issue, being opposed to same-sex marriage being legal, to 60% of the United States being in favor of it, and I just couldn't get over the fact that this is evidence for the fact that people do change their minds and sometimes very quickly. And I wanted to know, like, if I took all these people and put them in a time machine and sent them back to 10 or 12 years ago, would they argue with themselves? And if they did, like, why would they be taking different positions? What happened in their brains between these two points in history? I wanted to understand it. Mm. And that's what sent me out into the world trying to figure out how do people change their minds? Why do they resist? And why did those people not change their minds earlier and so on? And then eventually that led me to all sorts of uh, adventures out there in the world of politics and activism and, and uh, psychologically backed methods for persuasion. And it became this yes. grand, gigantic book. Yes. Well, thank you. That that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you, you, know, you brought up uh, politics because, honestly, when I first saw much of what you've uh, written before, I thought about politics first. Uh, I thought about mm-hmm. this, this um, what appears to be um, new, but, a, but certainly a phenomena about people uh, being able to, to switch. And, and actually, one of the conversations I was having today was really around is it a choice that people are making or is it delusion? Because you talk a little bit about that um, uh, in, in your writing. Um, is it, is it that, is it that people are saying, I, I'll just use an example there. there it just came in today. I just saw it on the news where one of the uh, politicians that was subpoenaed, by the um, January 6th committee um, was asked to come in and uh, basically said, no, I'm not coming and didn't go. 
and then now um, the same person is fighting over some committee and is making a statement that um, congressional subpoenas are important. They can't be blown off. And uh, we need to take this seriously and that people should be punished <laughs> that, um, right. that don't follow subpoenas or don't, don't respond to subpoenas. And so, you know, there are people who I, I've talked to who have said, and I even hear it on the news talk shows or what have you, where people say, oh, so-and-so is a hypocrite. And I just, I, I just remember a time where that meant something. If you were a politician and someone said, you, you know, you flip-flop, um, people didn't want to be seen that way. Now it's almost like people don't care. It's like, I know I'm going to flip-flop, and that's okay. And and where I'm going with this is, as it goes back to, you know, about how minds change, is that, so is it that people are actually making a choice to um, to be hypocritical or be, uh, you know, kind of two-sided here, or are they really talking themselves into the argument that this is different, even though all everything suggests that it's not different, it is the same, but they they say to themselves, this is this is not the same thing, or it is it is something that it's not. And so that's what I would love to hear your take yep. on on what that what that really is. But I, that's the way I saw it: is that it's one or the other. Well, the, I have, believe it or not, I, I can answer this question. Um, the this is there. We have a good solid seventy plus years of psycho, psychology and neuroscience addressing these uh, ways that people make sense of the world and come up with decisions and back propagate their justifications for it. Uh, and politics just is one way that we apply all these things. But the foundational psychology is the same across all domains. The something we that we have to accept about human nature. There's big R reason and there's sort of small R reason. Uh, and I totally understand that our knee-jerk reaction oftentimes when we get into an argument or a debate or we start watching people behave in the way that you described that uh, we want to apply this big R reason to the way people make sense of the world. That's the uh, facts and uh, uh, evidence and uh, a careful propositional logic which are all great things. We should always be doing that. That's the basis of the scientific method. And in a good faith discussion, that's where you should always go. If you're behind a lectern, you're facing another person behind a lectern, that's what you should be doing. If you're a scientist who's producing papers that need to be vetted in the marketplace of ideas in academia, yes, that. But when people are discussing things in a sort of argumentative framework or in a political uh, sphere, they usually don't employ that big R reason. They employ that little R reason, which is me to me. And that's coming up with reasons for what we think, feel, and, and believe. And we are motivated reasoners as human beings. And the, to take this out of psychology, body group, uh, I want you to take the example of the person who uh, said that who, who didn't uh, who didn't arrive even though they were subpoenaed, and then later on said nobody should ever do such a thing. Um, we that may seem like some sort of uh, character flaw flip-floppy thing and sure it is when the person is held to a high standard but it's something that we all do and we, we've all experienced this like you, 
this is the way I like to describe motivation, uh, motivated reasoning. Uh, most of us have had a friend or we've been a friend that's who uh, has they fallen in love with somebody. You have a new person that you're dating, and you're, uh, you ask your friend, like, well, what is it about them? Like, what reasons do you have to uh, get into a relationship with this person? And they'll say something like, well, uh, where do I even begin? I, I love the way they talk. Uh, I can listen to them for hours. I love the way they walk. I can, I can just watch them walk across the room, honestly. Uh, I, I like the, the music they're introducing me to. Uh, I can, and uh, I can even just watch them eat. I like to watch them use a fork and knife. That is how much I am into this person. And you, know, you say, that's great. I'm happy for you. And then a couple months later, they're breaking up with that exact same person. And then you ask them, well, what reasons do you have to break up with this person? And they'll say, well, where do I begin? Um, well, I can't stand the way they talk, for one thing. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's like fingernails down my spine. Uh, and yeah. I, can't, I don't even like the way they walk. I don't even like the way they walk. They have this weird walk yeah. that go across the room. Yeah. And, uh, man, every time we get in the or, car, or, the music they make, they make me listen to. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Or they uh, breathe, they're breathing they, too much. <laughs> <laughs> and they, uh, I don't like the way they cut their food. To tell you the truth, I, I saw them uh, <laughs> uh, cut a candy bar in half with a fork and knife. So you, yeah. you'll notice these are the same reasons from before. So the facts yeah. have not yeah. have not changed. Yeah. These are reasons that are sitting there that they're pulling out of the air because what they're looking for is a justification. And reasons for can become reasons against when yeah. the motivation to search for a justification have changed. And so that means that this, whatever facts that have been banding back and forth, whatever reasons have been traded back and forth, have, have been at the, the entire time, they have always been justifications and rationalizations for something deeper. And that deeper yeah. thing may be something that the person is not even aware of. If they call this the introspection illusion in psychology, it's very easy for us to come up with a narrative to explain ourselves to ourselves and other people, but that narrative may be fictional. The actual motivation is likely something we may have never uh, introspected and, and, and it may be something we're not aware of. That's what this is how we pay. This, this delusion that you're sensing in, in, in people is because we've entered a time, and we've had these times before in politics in this country, but and we often are in a state like this where as social creatures, as social primates, we are, uh, we are especially social. We're ultra-social, like bees and ants. And one of our deepest motivations is we want like to be seen as a good member of our group. A, we'd like to be seen as a trustworthy and reliable member of our group. And we'll, we try to, we'll try to signal that any opportunity we have. And our identities, for the most part, are that which identify us as being a member of a particular group. And Right mm-hmm. now, in in politics, with the addition of social media and the addition of this uh, this time period in which things are institutions are passing from the old way to the new way, um, you see a lot of people uh, like the person you're describing, where that's their prime driver, and even if they want to admit that to themselves. And you know, there's this thing that uh, Brooke Hangdon, the sociologist, told me that if there was an E equals MC squared of uh, social science, it would be the fear of social death is greater than the fear of physical death. And that means that when it's on the line, you're going to be more concerned about how your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors signal to other people 
uh, in effect, your reputation and your status, more than anything else, more than accuracy, more than anything. And the, under stress, under a, under mo- in moments where people feel like the stakes are very high, that's going to be the prime motivation, motivation for their behavior, whether or not they actually can see it themselves and whether or not they'll ever admit that to themselves. And it can create some really strange outcomes, and that, that's what we're seeing a whole lot of right now. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and I uh, uh, to that point where you're talking about how we want to be seen um, as members of whether it's a team or a community. Or otherwise, uh, I think about you know I, I, I'm in a, a department at Columbia, the Department of Organization and Leadership, and we mm-hmm. we spend a lot of time helping our leaders to understand both the art and science of leadership and the science heavily rooted in psychology uh, and sociology, but mostly psychology. Um, A lot of that resonates with me, particularly early in your book, you talk about persuasion. Um, You you bring up the, the idea about how persuasion happens. And I, I just mm-hmm. that really, really resonated with me. And and I w- I'd love for you to expand on it a little bit, but where you you talked about that one persuasion is not coercion, so it shouldn't be something that where you attempt to defeat, as you described it, an intellectual opponent with facts or superiority from moral perspective. But this was the thing that really caught me, where you said all persuasion is self persuasion. So expand on that a little bit. Well, you can't persuade another person to change their mind if they don't want to change their mind. And that you have the kind of the persuasion that works. I've spent time in so many different groups. One of the the most amazing things in the process of writing this book was discovering all these different organizations and institutions and activist groups who had independently discovered persuasion techniques that worked. And through A-B testing, they would, uh, like the deep canvassing, street epistemology, motivational interviewing, and so on. Like deep canvassing, they, they, when I met them, they had conducted 17,000 in-person, one-on-one conversations and had recorded them. And they threw away what didn't work. They kept what did. And they eventually got to something that was so powerful that social scientists around the world are, are observing them and studying them and writing papers about them. The All of these different groups, I like to think of it almost like uh, – it's like if you show any child the airplane from uh, the very first airplane, Kitty Hawk airplane, uh, they'll they'll be able to point say that's an airplane because airplanes look like airplanes, and airplanes yeah. look like airplanes because uh, in each uh, to create something that can fly on this planet, you have to overcome certain obstacles to get it to fly around: uh, gravity, wind resistance, material science, weight balance. These things combine to create a form that we recognize as the airplane. And the when it comes to interacting with another person and trying to persuade them to see things differently, to entertain different uh, uh, concepts, to change their attitudes, to uh, move their values around in some way or another, um, there are certain things you have to uh, overcome. Uh, identity, in-group, out-group status, reactance, all these different things. And so you end up with a form that looks very similar, uh, no matter who's creating it or how they got there. And one of the major points here is that all, when it comes to persuasion, all persuasion is self-persuasion in the sense that I'm not going to be able to copy and paste the way I think about something. I'm not going to be able to copy and paste my belief 
or my attitude or my value out of me and into you. It can't come out. I can't take something out of my brain and put it into your brain. You're going to have to come there get on your own. You're going to have to get there through the way that you make sense of the world. You're going to have to do things like elaboration and other things in psychology. It has to be on, on the other person's side of the equation. They have to get there on their own. And so the persuasion techniques that work are the ones that guide a person in that way. Uh, you have to pull the string and push it, as one psychologist told me. So the, the, the techniques that work, they, they start in that way. They, they, they help a person discover what their true motivations are, and then they help them see how their motivations and their goals could be met in different ways, and they could entertain different perspectives. And uh, um, that's what I mean by all persuasion is self-persuasion. And you're encouraging the other person to change their own mind. They're changing yeah. their mind, and you're the person who's guiding them to it. Sure, sure. So what I hear you saying is that they first have to be at least open to it. They have to be open to yeah. to to changing their mind. And, and you're part of the, these techniques is, is that's the big step one is I'm helping that person yeah. become open to this process. Sure. I, I guess the, the real um, thing that has me confused about a lot of what I'm watching unfold uh, here in our country is, is, and maybe this is part of what you were talking about as you described self uh, as you have described, uh, self-delusion. And so at the beginning, I talked about, you know, whether people make a choice to that this is how I'm going to be, and, or are they talking themselves into it? Now, for a long time, I, and I've heard so many, whether researchers, political scientists, and others who have suggested that, that uh, psychology is used to convince people to do things that are not, that are not even in their best uh, self-interest. And that that's a lot of persuasion going on, you know, so I don't know if it is, if it is entirely that it's not, um, you know, kind of the, a, a battle of wits or battle of intellect, but that aside, that what, what has me, um, somewhat puzzled is that is that part of so if I'm in a leadership role and this is this is the big question that I have for you I have so many people who listen that are in leadership roles and they've been they've been charged with either making a change in the organization and more broadly there's some people that have been charged with making a change in a community or otherwise, also trying to change people's mindsets, change, help them change their minds about how they feel about something. But how is it that when, when people are, are, and I don't want to call it stuck, but they, they are, they're unable to shift outside of their mindset, even when the facts demonstrate something very different and and they they ignore it and almost at the same time contradict themselves to make it make sense and so mm -hmm. i i it's the self delusion part is that what we're largely suffering from now or is it really that people are just actively making a choice that 
I'm, this is what I'm going to believe, truth or facts notwithstanding. There, at some point, people do actually make choices, but they're not actively choosing to be motivated. Uh, that motivation is coming from all sorts of influences. And uh, what we'll do is we'll tell ourselves a story to make up for the fact that we are in some way or another being uh, influenced emotionally to arrive at a certain conclusion or to be motivated by something. Uh, and we'll tell ourselves that's a choice. We'll tell ourselves that we did the research. We'll tell ourselves that we are, uh, that we'll, we'll imagine that we went down into some sort of library uh, uh, metaphorically and read all the books on the topic and then came back up from the, the staircase and said, aha, this is how I feel about the issues, how I feel about gun control or immigration or whatever. But most, most of the time you're being incredibly influenced by some sort of social pressure. And uh, especially in the United States or in Western culture in general, there's a value to of, of individuality and independence where you will very rarely admit that to yourself. You'd like to think that mm. it was a choice the whole way, the whole way down. Um, so there's a, that gets banded about a lot, this idea that uh, people are working against their self-interest, but they're not. That, that they're, There's just a deeper, more fundamental, more foundational self-interest that's being – uh, it, it's being activated and it's being entertained and it's being poked at by outside sources mm. that know how to do such things. The I like to use flat earthers as a nice example because it's nice and neutral and we can all look at that and, and, and see how it applies to other things. Like I've spent a lot of time with flat earthers, people who believe that the earth is flat uh, they or, or maybe more accurately, they do not believe the earth is round. And uh, you can dump every fact in the world on, on somebody like that. You can bring a scientist to, to hang out with them who uh, has studied this for a living. You can have them meet an astronaut, uh, and they will find all sorts of ways to go through all sorts of mental gymnastics to uh, look for ways to uh, avoid updating their priors in this matter. Uh, they, they will find ways to uh, have uh, to get out of changing their mind. And, that, but to put that much effort into something, because it takes a lot of calories to hold on to an idea like that, um, there has to be something deeper at play than I want to be right about whether or not the Earth is flat around. And what, what's at stake for them uh, changed in the course of them finding themselves locked into this belief system. In the beginning, they likely had uh, an anxiety or a prejudice. Uh, and I, I do mean that in, in, in the truest, truest of sense. They had some sort of prejudice about something in the world, or they had some sort of deep anxiety about something in the world. And they, that, had, that manifested maybe as a fear. Uh, maybe they felt like they didn't have their identity settled, or they had an identity in place they wanted to defend. And they went looking for some other people out there who felt the same way. And thanks to the structure of uh, the Internet today, that's very easy to do. And then once they found a community of people that sort of saw things the same way, they began spending more and more time with them, sometimes in person, but usually virtually, and they found themselves locked in a community. So originally there's some allure that got them there. But once they're there, once that social pressure is in place, once the identity thing is at stake, that's going to be the prime motivator. It's just going to keep them going. So mm -hmm. when 
so initially this person probably what they act, they may talk all day about how the earth is, is flat but what they're actually what they originally were driven by was a fear and anxiety about the military industrial complex or they had some sort of mm. uh, uh, they had some sort of mistrust of the government and that led them to look at the idea of uh, the military industrial complex sending people to space and they had this whole idea that, that that maybe they were tricking us for some reason. And this plays into all that. It, it, it totally confirms these emotions. That was their original reason to talk about all these things. And then over time, they found themselves in a community. And now their their reason for having such a strong, strong, strong pushback and reactance to someone trying to throw facts at them is they want to remain a good member of the flat earth community. So this yeah, is true yeah. for a lot of the things that, that, uh, that, uh, to sum this up, it, that, that, that's true for many of the things we find ourselves on the other side of with people, and we keep wondering, why don't these facts work on them? Why are they so deluded? What's wrong with them? Why can't I seem to get through them? Yes. It's because you, what you're doing is not stronger than the thing that, that is motivating them to stay in this, in this belief structure. Uh, they are, uh, the, the, that, you haven't even addressed the thing that got them there. And if you were to have a discussion about that, you'd have a lot more success than if you try to stay in this sort of abstract space that has nothing mm. to do with why they keep going back to this, this world and they keep defending it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, and it, especially in the world of uh, politics, I, I've had so many conversations recently about, so what's the right strategy? Um, but it's not just political kind of in the political arena, uh, leaders and organizations are faced with the same thing. So whether it is, uh, you know, you gave some examples about um, uh, organizations. So you, we, we had, we had uh, a lot of fights about um, COVID and the vaccine and even um, uh, the, the events that took place in um, Sandy Hook and, and on and on that um it seems to be that the the truth didn't didn't matter or the facts didn't matter anymore um uh and and so it's it's just it's just a uh in a lot of ways it's disturbing uh, but what you just said makes a lot of sense is that you did you have to overcome the 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 factor that it has led them to believe what they believe in the first place and so if you're your argument, if you will, is not strong enough or compelling enough, minds won't change. But going back to the first part that we, where we started in this conversation was that people have to be open too. They got to be open to change. But, um, but I think a big part of that is what you just said is that you have to overcome uh, what they, what they what led them there to that conclusion or that belief in the first place. So I it's crazy. We're already over time, but I wanna I wanna ask you this one thing. Sure. Um since so many people listening are in leadership roles, what would be your advice to someone that's charged with with such a kind of a daunting task of of trying to change minds? Where do they start? What what's the best What's the best place to um, to to kind of get a grip so that you can push or pull those people into um, into your your same mindset? Sure, uh, there are, and in the book we go into there's all sorts of there's steps and there's techniques, but there so the, two of the big takeaways are the very first thing you have to do is 
You have to have cognitive empathy. That's, how, that's what they call it, it, it in uh-huh. my view. And I, and I absolutely understand if you're dealing with someone who is aggressive or someone who is, uh, they, may, they may hate you. They may be prejudiced. They may be, uh, in many regards, they may be a person that you would be justified in not having an empathetic response to the way they're behaving in this world and the way that they're choosing to do things. I totally understand that. If these persuasion techniques are very powerful, and one of the ways you can get the process started is to employ cognitive empathy. And this just simply means seeing that this person, is, they have arrived at their beliefs, attitudes, and values through some sort of motivating process and, and try to look at how they got there. What is the uh, process and the technique by which they are uh, and what sort of epistemology are they applying to get them where they're at? Don't focus on the outcome and their conclusions. Focus on what is it that's motivating them to be skeptical in some ways and absolutely uh, unskeptical in others. That's the first thing. So to do that, you need to uh, try to have empathy for they may not have chosen the uh, the uh, they may not have chosen the influences they're influencing them. It's one thing. So you. And the other thing is when you, you have to uh, always establish rapport in the beginning, which just means you, you can never shame a person into changing their mind. If you, if you tell a person you should be ashamed, even if they should be ashamed, if you tell a person they should be ashamed for what they think, feel, and believe, or you say something that could be interpreted as you should be ashamed, conversation mm. will be over and you'll ruin any chances of going further. And the gotcha. major piece of advice here is you, you have to get out of a debate frame. If, if, uh. you, if, you, if you get into a frame where you need – you're communicating or you have outright said that I want to win and I want you to lose. I want you to, to admit that I'm right and that you're wrong. You will have very little chance of success versus getting out of a debate frame and getting into a collaboration frame. Uh, instead uh-huh. of facing off against the other person, you want to get shoulder to shoulder. And it's a very particular kind of shoulder to shoulder, which is yeah. I you communicate to the person, I find, I, I respect you, at least on the level of, 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 as a human being, and you seem like you're a reasonable and rational person, but isn't it curious that you disagree? I wonder why we disagree, and would you uh, mind getting, would you agree with me at least on, on this, what if we got shoulder to shoulder and we tried to solve a mystery together? And the mystery is, what is the nature of our disagreement? And this way, hmm. you make it so that you're not neither you or the other person is an opponent in this interaction. There is a third thing that you can focus on, which is what is it that we're disagreeing at? Why are we disagreeing? What is the goal we're trying to get to? What is the the problem we're trying to solve? And once you get into a collaborative frame with another person, even over an issue in which you disagree, you have a much greater chance of success than if you're trying to get the other person to at some point yield to whatever pressure you're trying to apply in that interaction. Mm. Very, very solid advice. Thank you so much, David. So listen, I I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I'd love for you um, to to share with people where they might um, find your 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 work, um, articles you've written, books, other books. Um, I mentioned in the beginning that um, your your latest book, How Minds Change: The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion. Definitely for leaders uh, and others, uh, a great book to to have as a part of your library. But how can how can people um, look for you? Are there any social media handles, podcasts, 
any any email addresses or websites that they can they can find you and support your work. <laughs> Great, yeah, sure. You can find all my stuff at uh, davidmccraney.com, as we can find everything. All my social media is all David McCraney, and I my podcast is at You Are Not So Smart is the name of the podcast and the website they can get all the back catalog you are not so smart.com that's the two places you can find me and uh i'm always traveling around the world giving lectures consulting and all the other stuff in between and easy to find me my email is just davidmccraney.com on uh, my website davidmccraney.com email davidmccraney gmail easy to find Excellent, excellent. Well, thanks, David. Uh, I'm definitely gonna we, we'll be following up with you for. I uh, got to get you over to the university uh, and soon. Uh, this is a very, very good uh, uh, introduction for me. Um, and so, until we uh, meet on campus, go well, stay well. Same to you, sir. Thank you so much.